0: Hi everyone, it's Scott. Today on the podcast feed, we're going to share an edited version of the fifth and final episode of Pivot Schooled, our live video series. This episode was originally broadcast on Wednesday, September 2nd, and the theme was The Psychology of Recovery. Our guests were Howard University President, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick, the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District, Austin Butner. And Kara's longtime friend and co founder, Walt Mossberg, who's now on the board of the News Literacy Project. Later in the show, we'll also answer listener questions and make some predictions. If you paid for a ticket to any or all episodes of Pivot Schooled, you can watch the video replays of all five episodes at pivotschooled.com. But now, let's get to Pivot Schooled about the psychology of recovery.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome. Oh, there you are to Pivot Schooled. I'm Kara Swisher.
0: And I'm Scott Galloway. How are you, Kara?
1: Are you wearing a neckerchief? Men wear a lot of neckerchiefs, I've noticed. It's a man thing.
0: Otherwise, I just forget it. I just uh, keep it on all day. I sleep with this thing. I sleep with this thing.
1: Do you? Yeah. Yeah. What's on it there? What do you got on there?
0: It's got skulls and crossbows. My friends, the Henderson down in Florida, gave it to me. I love it. I think I love it. Oh, very nice. who Who is that behind that necker? Who is that? Is it the dog? Could, could he be our friend? <laughs> Would he like me too? And then I go like yes, this. And nothing, like, Never mind.
1: Uh, Never mind. mind. Nothing says friend like skull and crossbones. Now nothing says welcome to my thing. I think you have a nice thing. How about one. the rosacea listen, on, on my
0: nose? Top. Jesus. All right, do listen I drink right. that much? You, how did I get were,
1: so fucking over?
0: Seriously, how did I get so over? You early?
1: were a little crazy on our first episode back from vacation. Are you calmed down sufficiently or not?
0: Oh, if that's if that's wrong, we don't want to be right. How much did you love that?
1: This is a topic where you rant a little bit about, and I like yeah. it, this education topic. This is the fifth yeah. and final episode of Pivot School. It's a live event, the psychology of recovery. Uh, we have some amazing guests coming up, but, uh, but first let's talk about what's going on. There's so much Zoom market cap, $133 billion higher that? than Cisco's yeah, market really? cap in 2011 when Eric, uh, left, the founder left to start Zoom. Um, what do you, What do you think of this what is this What is, what is happening in this zoom situation? It looks like Zoom is here to stay, and that 's one of the topics we 'll be talking about with some of our guests. Um, there's all kinds of things going on. There's bags of soup as terrorists uh, for terrorism. There's crazy, like, I was thinking the only person who rants more this week than you is President Trump around dark shadows and planes full of people in dark clothing, which is the plot of The Expendables, as I pointed out on Twitter. Uh, What's happened? And then all these uh, these, uh, splits for tech companies, all these giant splits for Tesla, for Apple, for possibly others.
0: I mean, the biggest story, or I think the most interesting story in the market is, the acceleration of these companies that the market has just decided, okay, you're one of these companies. And I don't know if it's a combination of the future being pulled forward or new new investors on the margin coming in from Robinhood who don't mm-hmm. know what they're doing and this all ends poorly. I mean, Cisco, I don't know if you remember, Cisco at one point was the most valuable company in the world in 99. And what I think it's... over the course of the next like year lost 98% of its value or not about 85, maybe 90%. But Zoom at these mm-hmm. levels, it's just, it's really incredible. Um, the the story I saw today, and I thought of you actually, was another illusionist trick. Mark Zuckerberg is uh, has pledged $300 million to try and um, stave off or suppress election interference, which I think mm-hmm. is just so incredibly disingenuous, hypocritical, and is nothing but a yeah. half a percent of his net worth to try and distract from the other 99 and a half percent of his net worth that is derived from tearing of the fabric of our democracy. I think it's incredibly disingenuous, mm-hmm. and I hope no yeah. one is fooled by it. it. It's almost as bad as putting out a book about the important topic of gender balance in the workforce and then going on to elect an illegitimate president who puts people on the Supreme Court that undermines a woman's right to choice. Oh, know, it's, just, this is, it's just
1: You're surprised by this hypocrisy. They create the well, what problem. do you think? I'll they, turn it back expect- to you.
0: $300 million, on the face of it, $300 million donation to stop election interference. Sounds good, right? Sounds good. I would good. rather
1: just... I'd rather they just fix the platform so that it doesn't do that. They just reported that there were problems on the platform from Russians, including they took down a fake uh, news site where they used journalists, U.S. journalists, to write anti-Biden yeah. stories was from the Russians. It just is like, it just pops up, whether it's QAnon or whatever. It's the it's the maintenance of this platform. And telling us that it's too hard to maintain means it probably shouldn't be there. And I think that, uh, you know, first they tried to minimize it and say it's not that big a deal. And then they said, well, yeah. it's a big deal, but... We can't control it. You know, I think it's guilt money. It's sort of like, it reminds me of the Sacklers or, you know, that made all that money ruining people's lives through opiate addiction and selling it into the market in a way that was so aggressive where doctors prescribed it Um, and and this addictive and dangerous substances and then giving money to museums and and trying to, it's just, it's not, it's it's from the rich people's, the evil playbook, I guess, but it's certainly Mm -hmm. uh, problematic. I think it's just, I just would rather they would fix the platform and he can give away money all he wants uh, or whatever, B- better yet, let's tax these people properly. Um, but I think that it's just, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's every day there's something fresh and I would like to get, honestly, I mean, it sounds like coming from my mouth, I'd love to get a positive story about Facebook. I really would. Mm-hmm. I really would like to see something where they can add to the uh, to better the world in a way that's significant. I just don't know if it's possible. I don't. I don't know. And I think they're just going to get I bigger. I
0: like- uh, I mean, first off, if they wanted to, if we wanted to solve this, it'd be easy. It's just for every instance of election interference, you get fined a million dollars, and they'd start racking up billions of dollars of fines every day. They'd figure out a way to solve it. Mm-hmm. You know, just speaking, yeah. out, we're always we're always t- pointing out corporations. Or behavior, You know what I thought was a really, really wonderful thing that came out yesterday is Old Navy announced that they're going to give their workers the day off to be pollsters. And I thought that was mm-hmm. just smart, good, the right thing to do. I thought that was really, really neat. So, so well on, done. Work Gap, on sites.
1: Work work yeah. on
0: election sites. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Be poll. What do they call it? Be poll. Poll worker. what the term is. Poll workers. Poll workers. Thank you. Poll workers. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Paul brings up yeah. an entirely set of different images for I me. I know that. I, I just
1: there. saw that. I saw you just went right to a strip club. <laughs> I saw that. I watched it. I watched it be like poll dancing. I pole hate workers. COVID.
0: That's really one of the downsides of COVID. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's yeah. difficult.
0: Okay. By the way, I don't eat fast food or go to strip joints in the city I live. I have standards. I have standards. Oh, that's
1: okay. No All and right. double
0: no for me, just so you know, Karen. Yeah,
1: more information that we needn't have learned about you. Um, poll workers it. should, a lot, of, a lot of tech companies are pushing for their younger employees to be poll workers because it, people are First gives people the day
0: off <laughs> on election day, as for generations. Well,
1: that should be a national holiday. That's, I'm sorry. That's always been... It's been one of those things that should be a national holiday. And all companies, and the way we're going to get it done is if big companies, say the big tech companies would be perfect, give everybody that day off and just make it make the businesses bleed the way, as they often have in many of these issues around racial integration, gay rights, and things like what that. What if just Uber have the gave their 4
0: million drivers minimum wage, which is more than they make for the day off? I, I don't think Google needs a day off. Those Those folks are... They got plenty. I know, could, they were from home. They got plenty it's, it's of money. It's
1: a symbolic situation, and and yeah. also help, you know help help uh, help things. And in, in the area we're going to talk about today, which is schools, also help um, help in that regard in terms of creating. Um, you know, ability for parents and, and others to have a moment's rest. And I think it just being able to vote, adding to the stress of COVID, would be a great thing. Anyway, let's get Everything. on with the show. We have a lot going on. Uh bingo, by the way, you you do look rather natty there in your New York apartment. It's so fancy. It's fancy. Natty? I see you fancy. Natty, natty. Yeah. natty. Yeah, yeah. Just look you it look up. Look nice. it you up. look it's
0: like you bit look bit like an eight year old boy about to get beaten up by somebody. I know. What's <laughs> a <good> <laughs> shirt? <laughs>
1: What's shirt?
0: Or beat it's someone purple. else up. I got
1: a- you no, know, it's. I've decided to give up on dressing. Um, I am going to the beach <laughs> after this, and so I'm dressed for the beach. This is, says you Brooklyn it, on it, and I like I like, I like eight year old boy I, for a long time Good now, news. and I still have I have all my, my sons. Thank you. I have all my sons' uh, t shirts that I wear when they were eight years old, and I enjoy them to this day. I was going to wear an That's Angry nice. Birds t shirt, but I thought. Yeah, they fit me. That's very nice and I'll be wearing Clara's clothes at some point, you know. Not the ones right now. They're kind of small, but I like wearing children's clothes and I often shop in the children's section because I'm am a wee little thing. Anyway, uh, let's go through things. Uh, I'm wee. You're uh, a Bingo giant. Is back.
0: You're a giant. I'm a
1: giant. I'm a giant. It's anyway.
0: Right. You talked about your kids, Gestalt.
1: Oh, shush, hush, hush, hush. Sorry, uh, but you asked me about it. You said I would look like an eight-year-old child, and it is, in fact, the T-shirt of an 8 year old child. We have a special announcement to make. Pivot School is donating $60,000 to two hunger nonprofits, $30,000 to City Harvest in New York City, and Frontline Foods, which feeds essential workers and impacted communities across the country. $20 of each ticket we sold went into the donation, as we promised, and we mean literally we couldn't have done it without you. Uh, we hope that we'll be able to raise more in the future, but thank you so much. Uh, for your, for for the audience. Um, And we're glad to donate this amount. I think it's critically important you see a lot of these food lines. Um, Maybe the next one will be getting people internet access because you see a lot of school, kids uh, having to do school in front of uh, like Taco Bells or places where there's, uh, where there's internet access, but this is uh, this is a nice thing. We're not going to uh, say it's our uh, doing. It's all you're doing, and we appreciate it. Uh, let's bring uh, in some friends of pivots to talk about education. So first, let's talk to the president of Howard University, which is just a so throw so from where I am, uh, Dr. Wayne AI Frederick. He is here uh, to talk to us about what's happening at Howard uh, and other, uh, and other schools like it. How yeah, hi, how are you? Um, Thanks Thank you so me. much for coming on. So talk a little bit about your experience at Howard, what Howard's doing this year, virtual versus in-person classes. Is there a date by which you're aiming to have everyone on campus? Talk a little bit about your decision-making around what you've been doing.
3: Yeah. So first of all, I want to thank you for having me and I appreciated um, <laughs> uh, Professor Galloway's uh, presentation. Uh, we we, had, we put together a task force, um, looked at uh, the health and safety issues uh, primarily, And uh, we initially made a decision to bring a limited number of students um, to campus. I think one of the things that you heard in the prior presentation is that there are students at risk. And at Howard University, although we're a private institution, uh, we actually have a high number of students who have food insecurity and housing insecurity. Forty-six percent of my undergrad students are Pell Grant eligible, Mm -hmm. and our endowment is less than a billion So we we do have students, uh, for instance, students who are in foster care and emancipated, and they really plan their living circumstances when they're in college around, um, you know, obviously, when the semesters, et cetera. Um, The city, D.C., then made a decision that uh, if you came from 29 hotspots, you had to quarantine for a minimum of 14 Mm -hmm. days. And uh, we felt that that would not be something that we could um, navigate well uh, as well as uh, the high um, level of uh, contact tracing that would be necessary. Mm-hmm. So we decided to go completely online. As we go forward, um, we're, we're going to make a decision, especially uh, because we have vulnerable population, a high percentage of our um, faculty and staff are in the vulnerable populations. African-Americans obviously have been disproportionately impacted. And so we, uh, we employ more African-American faculty at Harvard University than any other higher end institution. Uh, residential. And so we, we felt that that would be a risk as well and something that we would have to gauge as we go forward as well.
1: So you made this decision early. You made it much earlier yeah. uh, and and not bringing the students back and doing it quickly. What has been the reaction uh, from students, professors, the DC community?
3: Yeah, I, I think people have been understanding. Um, we do have students who as you can imagine, and coping as well because they are uh, in home situations where domestic violence has increased. Um, some uh, significant numbers don't have reliable Wi-Fi or just as was described, um, they have other family members who are also using um, that internet access, et cetera. And so they, they have some difficulty with that. But I would say overall, I'd say the majority of people were satisfied with the decision to stay away recognizing uh, the health and safety concerns. um, So, President, first of all,
0: I really want to commend you uh, uh, for your leadership around this issue. I think if there's any university that could have made excuses for why they were having a hybrid model and try to wipe Vaseline over the decision to try and excuse the higher, you know, decent tuition, it would have been. It would have been Howard and you just did the calculus and said, you know, we're going, we're going online and we're, we don't want people back on campus. My question is about graduation rates. And my understanding is based on my information, your graduation rates are about 59%. Is that right? 59% of the people who start actually end up yeah, graduating. That's and at Georgetown, I think it's 94%. At George Washington, it's 84%. At Harvard, it's like 96%. If you could say anything to high schools, lawmakers, eh, to say, I need to get my graduate, uh, we're fulfilling against our mission. We have great kids. We need to get our gradua- graduation rates up. What would you like to see happen such that you could take that number up?
3: Yeah, th- that's a great question. Actually, when I started, the graduation rate was 38%. 38. And uh, we moved it wow. to, f- that's correct. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And we moved it to 57% of four year graduation rate. And it was something that I have been um, very focused on from the beginning. The number one barrier to students graduating at Harvard was finances. Uh, students who would not persist, not because of academic fortitude, but because of financial uh, circumstances. Um, we, we have significant numbers of students who end up with unpaid balances um, well north of $25,000. Our AR. Uh, going into the year after school starts, typically is above fifty million. This year has been one of the lowest. It's, it's below twenty. is below twenty-five million this year, and so the financial resources, I would say, is an, is the number one issue. And, and you have to remember the two, the two schools you just cited in the DC area. Um, their tuition is almost twice our tuition, and yet still our sc- our students struggle because their program populations are less than twenty percent, I believe. And as I said, I was just 46%. Yeah. So it's a combination of factors that uh, makes it difficult. So if I could speak to lawmakers and say, you know, what what would change this? I mean, one of my goals at Howard is ultimately to allow every Pell Grant student to attend for free. A few years ago, I went to the Board of Trustees and I said, every student who had an expected family contribution is zero, gets the maximum Pell Grant, let's start something called the GRACE Grant. And the GRACE is a pseudonym for basically retention and access. And what we did there was we filled their package completely um, after their Pell Grant. And sure enough, what we saw was a graduation rate of 89% Mm -hmm. in that group. Those students who did not get the same had the graduation rate that you quoted around 59%. So clearly, uh, taking away the financial barrier completely changed uh, those students' circumstances. And why is that? Someone may say, well, how does that affect their performance? Those students end up working, um, so they end up, uh, you know, taking classes and at the same time trying to work and do that. They end up incurring significant debt, which I think causes yeah. stress, um, getting bills from us consistently. And to a point that you made earlier, um, we have a rule that we don't provide a transcript if you have a balance with us. So the other thing that worries me about the circumstances as well is that the students then end up completing, they may have a 4.0, um, at the end of the sophomore semester can't get a transcript from us because they owe us twenty five thousand dollars and and so it is a broken system and one that we 're trying uh to fix so if we can fill it and there 's unspent Pell in the billions of dollars mm-hmm. not every year but especially when the country is in economic uh, in in you know better economic circumstances so i 've proposed that we use the unspent pell um in a in a proportionate manner to enhance the ability for those students to pay their bills and also for schools like Howard that are committed to get to taking in a large number of Pell Grant students to help with the infrastructure and support systems around housing and so on for those students and food insecurity. So, uh,
0: first off, I really relate to what you're saying. I was a Pell Grant recipient uh, all five years at UCLA and I wouldn't have made it through college without it. Uh, the other side of the equation is that my tuition at UCLA was $1,200 a year. Tuition at Howard is 27,000 years, is that right? So we are still lower than most, but that's still, I would imagine if you're like most universities, tuition has grown much faster than inflation. And I, you don't have to address this specifically at Howard because I don't want you to freak out your faculty or various cohorts. But speaking as someone who's a leader in the university community, the other side of that equation is we have to reduce costs. Costs have just exploded at universities And most of that cost has been passed on to kids in the form of debt. What are the immovable costs here that have driven up tuition so dramatically? And what general thoughts or advice do you have uh, for us and for universities? What are we going to need to do to bring down those costs?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll touch the immovable costs. But before I touch that, I also want to mention that, unfortunately, my faculty were paid about 25 to 33 Mm percent less. Uh, then the average, uh, when I took over they now now at about 20% less. So part of the issue here as well, especially when you employ, a, um, more African American faculty than anyone else is I, I, feel that we do have a moral obligation to try to help when you talk about generational wealth, et cetera, with respect to my faculty as well. In terms of the immovable course, um, one of the things I think that o- all universities do, and I think Howard is no, no different, and we have to change, and this is one of the areas where I'm committed to, uh, is um, being all things to um, everyone. I think that's that's one of the things that we have to stop. We have 13 schools and colleges, uh, we have a hospital, we have a radio station, a TV mm-hmm. station, and every single thing is a sacred yeah. cow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a surgeon by practice. I still practice medicine, and so there's suspicion if I show up and I say, well why exactly do we need to have a TV station, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or why exactly do we need to, if we do program prioritization, uh, what, you know, why do we have to do X, Y, Z? And, and that becomes a problem. We have four students take Chinese uh, over a four-year period, but yet still uh, we would have two or three full-time faculty members in those areas. We, we belong to the consortium in D.C. You could take those classes at the other universities in D.C. So some of those practical things I think are things that we, we have to do as an institution. Uh, Howard is not one of those institutions where you'll come and see a very big gym, mm-hmm. fancy gym. You're not going to come and see sauna. You're not going to get pesto in the mm-hmm. cafeteria. Right.
1: No pesto. Uh,
3: that's not what we're spending our money on. That's a, We're spending our money on right. too many programs. Yeah, is what I All right. Say.
1: Let me ask you, I know you've got to have a hard out in just a second, but I want to ask two more, I think, important questions. We have one or two questions from the audience, if you don't mind staying for a second. Um, well, do you think virtual learning will always be a part of Howard's curriculum going forward with Professor Galloway's talking about expanding the student body and then uh cutting the costs I mean essentially so you give more opportunity even after it do you see that as a permanent? facet of all universities. And then I'd love you to talk about, you know, Howard is a historically black university. As we all know, uh, black Americans are dying of COVID at twice the rate of white people. Um, how do you think about recovery differently from non-HBCUs? And, that's, and then there's a question from the audience about that. Um, how is Howard University going to do business different with BLM Insights? Uh, how, how do you see that happening? The first one first is, are you going to stay in virtual?
3: Yeah, the fir- on the first question, absolutely. I, I think that we will have um, more virtual offerings. That was part of our strategic mm-hmm. plan uh, in order to be able to expand the opportunity. And some of the proof is in the pudding. Uh, the, pa- the pandemic came, uh, we went to virtual fairly quickly. And as soon as we, we got to virtual, um, we saw what we thought would be a decrease in enrollment, actually going the opposite direction. We had 9,400 students enroll in the fall Uh, As of this morning, we have 10,863 students enrolled. So because students don't have the cost of housing and some of those other things, our retention and persistence has been higher. And so to to Scott's earlier point, um, one of the crazy things about this is we may end up with a higher graduation rate as a result of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. which is not something that most people would intuitively uh, potentially think about. So I think there would be some of that. And yes, Howard is a HBCU. Uh, we have to think about the pandemic differently. And I think that there are three factors. Uh, one is, um, you, you look in D.C., if you are a black male who lives in Ward 7 and 8, which is 95% um, black, your expected life expectancy is about 67 years. If you're a white male who lives in Ward 3, where the life expectancy uh, for a white male, where it's 95% uh, white, is probably about 87 years, or almost 20-year mm-hmm. difference. Uh, There's something very broken um, in our society and our healthcare system. I I see patients with GI cancers all the time, and and I see that wide difference in terms of the access. So what we have done is try to be out in the community doing testing. When we look at recovery and coming back, uh, we recognize that access to a vaccine um, or any other treatment is also going to disproportionately affect us. So uh, I wrote a, a draft of an op-ed that I have shared now with the other four, three um, black HBCU medical school presidents. And uh, we intend to publish an op-ed to promote the fact that uh, vaccine trials need to accrue more African-Americans. And the best way to do that is to engage us in both the science and uh, the clinical aspect of it. And I think, unfortunately, um, that has been a blind spot in this fight. Uh, Only 4% uh, uh, accrual of African-Americans at this rate. And then on the Black Lives Matter, you know, Howard uh, is one of these institutions for 153 years. We've been on a journey towards social justice. We are in a very pregnant moment in our country where many are joining that caravan, and we're very grateful for that. The reality is, uh, just like with the civil rights movements and other movements, people will leave that caravan we're committed to getting all the way to the destination. So we're going to continue um, to do what we need to do. I don't think that there's anything different uh, per se that we need to do in this moment. We've been doing the things, and that is making sure we graduate people who can um, bring about policy change. So Kamala Harris being a, an mm-hmm. alum um, is an mm-hmm. example of that. Uh, Chadwick Bozeman, as you just spoke about healthcare disparities, when we lose a 43-year-old, um, special human being to colon cancer. And we have, um, guidelines in this country that, um, rep, that recommend screening at 45. Um, that leaves him mm-hmm. out. Um, Ibrahim Kendi, who I spoke to this morning, was diagnosed at the age of 36 with stage four colon cancer. And uh, this is not an exception. This is becoming the rule. And I think that we have to make major changes. So what Howard needs to do is to continue to talk about the things. Um, that are important to do research and to recommend policies, and most importantly, to graduate the young people that will go out and bring these issues to the forefront and hopefully bring about policy changes. And right now, a lot of that hope Um, is invested in Kamala Harris, but we have 80,000 alum who are doing the blocking and tackling every day of these issues. So the last question for me is how
1: important is the physical presence of people being at Howard? I really miss the students here. Like, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I can get into Uzunaz really quickly, for example, but what is that important? If you have, if your, your mission is social justice, not having a physical gathering is much more important, I would assume. And it's important not just so they can party or whatever. It's that it's, To me, it's very important to physically have a Howard operating.
3: I I hope Scott will allow me this uh, bit of leeway, but I I actually think at at an institution like Howard, it's critical. Mm -hmm. The the most important thing we do here is instill confidence in young people. And some of that socialization that Scott described in in K-12, you have to remember, because of our public school system and the disadvantages that African-American students face, they do not come to college um, with those same advantages because they don't grow up in systems that necessarily promote that and promote that in them. And when they come to Howard, I think we, uh, have the ability to instill confidence in them and they leave here, um, better because of the socialization. They spend about 10 to 20% of their time in a classroom. But a lot of, I think the secret sauce that occurs here occurs, um, because Stokely Carmichael could run into somebody else mm-hmm. in the hallway or, or, um, a Chadwick Bozeman could, go make a movie with a Susan Susan Kalecki Watson when they both were here and a Bradford Young shooting Mm it. Um, That just can't happen in a virtual environment. And that's why uh, getting students to interact here uh, is important. We're not going to do it in an unsafe manner, but I I do want to be clear that for an institution like Howard, even, even going online and giving more opportunities virtual, um, ultimately, I still think our secret sauce is going to be that socialization yep. that uh, does accrue on Let me just
1: say, if campus, people who haven't seen Howard, it's a beautiful campus. It's really lovely and very, it's a gorgeous place. I enjoy going to visit it when I, in my neighborhood. And it's. it should be, I can't wait to see the students there.
3: President Frederick, do you have kids? I do. I have a 16-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter, a rising junior and a, a rising freshman. So a surgeon
0: who's now the president of Howard, I can't imagine how much, how obnoxious your parents are when they go together with other parents bragging about you and you have kids. <laughs> Can you give us just one piece of parenting advice that you've registered after being raised in obviously an environment that, you know, it worked out very well for you and now having your own children? What, advi- what one piece of advice would you give to parents for raising successful kids?
3: You know, yesterday my... um Yesterday would have been my father's 74th birthday, but he died a month short of my third birthday. He was a police officer, Mounted Branch police officer in Trinidad and Tobago, where I was born. I was born with sickle cell. My mom was a nurse who worked in the public healthcare system. I am the beneficiary of an incredible public system uh, that worked well in Trinidad and Tobago, run by a prime minister who uh, was a political science professor here at Howard. What I have seen, especially during the pandemic and my two kids, is that I think this generation is more altruistic. Uh, They have a lot more information about what is happening. And I think what we need to do is to recognize that they still need our direction and love because they have information that's not exactly formulated in a manner um, that makes sense. You can't get a lot of information in 40 characters on a tweet. And so while they have a lot of information, that's a good kernel to start a conversation. But ultimately, what they want is for us to still um, be parents and so still be present, to listen, but at the same time, to cajole and to push them in certain directions. And this pandemic has taught me that I've spent more time with my kids in their 16 and 14 years in the past uh, six months than I did their entire yep. lives. And I'm ashamed yep. of that. Um, you know, but I think it's time they want us. Wow, they that, want that, you, that, Scott. That's, that's it, really inspiring. <laughs> thank <laughs> that's you. Wonderful. Thank you. That's fine.
1: That. Thank you so much, and good luck at Howard. I can't wait to see you all back on campus. But good luck with this uh, semester, and thank you so much. You're an amazing leader,
3: education, thank education. You, <laughs> thank you. And I appreciate all that both of you do. Thank you very, very much.
1: All right. Now that was amazing. I feel I
0: that was very amazing and inspiring.
1: It's an amazing, inspiring. It's an amazing school. I will take you on a tour of Howard when you come visit me in my here in D.C. You
0: always (laughs) promise me that stuff. Well, you you haven't come here. You haven't
1: come. not taking you for golf. There's no golf course here. Anyway.
0: Hey, it's Scott. We're listening to the fifth episode of Pivot School, which was broadcast live on Wednesday, September 2nd. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be right back after this. support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Let's talk travel. Whether you're setting off on a business trip or taking that well-deserved summer vacation, we're always so focused to getting to our destination that we forget to embrace the journey. Well, when you fly Virgin Atlantic, it serves as a reminder that a memorable trip begins right from the moment you check in. That's why they offer loads of special touches to truly elevate your time in the sky, such as in-flight movies, music, TV, and podcasts that you actually can't wait to dive into a snack bar that you can help yourself to at any time, and an iconically British high tea high up in the clouds. They've got these little salt and pepper shakers that you're encouraged to pocket as your first souvenir. And if you're feeling really fancy, how about a wine-tasting experience at 38,000 feet? Uh, So really, we're just getting started. From their brilliant next-level service to the food, the entertainment, the planes, the clubhouse, the crew, and so much more, these are just a few of the many special touches that make me love flying with Virgin Atlantic. And I do, I fly Virgin Atlantic a lot. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip to London and beyond, and see for yourself how traveling for business can always be a pleasure. This is Pivot School. Let's get back to the show on our second friend of Pivot interview, the superintendent of Los Angeles Unified School District, Austin Butner.
1: Now, for a different perspective, let's bring in our second friend of Pivot, the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District, a very, I think it's the largest in the country, Austin Buettner. Austin?
2: Good morning. Thanks. For Hi. Me.
1: Thank you so much for coming. Um, thanks for joining us. Wow, there's so much to talk about here. That was an amazing uh, discussion about colleges, but let's talk about the demographics and size of your school district and how it impacts remote education. How big it is, the income breakdown, the racial gap. Uh, you have the mo- one of the most complex jobs around right now.
2: Yeah. So we serve the needs of about 700,000 students uh, spread across mm-hmm. a diverse set of communities. Uh, more than 700 square miles. About 80 some odd percent of students we serve come from families living in poverty. 85 plus percent are kids of color, uh, black and Latino. Uh, More than two-thirds of families we serve have had someone in the family lose work due to COVID. Uh, So simplest way to think about it is we serve a community with great needs. And for many students, a great public education is a path out of poverty. For all of them, this is the foundation of opportunity for the rest of their lives. And that's the work that we try and do every day.
1: And how significant is the broadband gap and the at-home technology gap? And what are you doing to address it? That's sort of the first basic Building block of what's going on. And talk a little bit about what you're doing right now.
2: Yeah, so go go back to March. And before March, so let's say February, we do three things. We help students learn, we provide a safety net for students and families, and we take care of our employees. We've got 75,000 employees who take care of the 700,000 students. And we have tried to do those same three things, uh, starting first with a low tech solution. So we reached out to PBS, we created a set of student centered learning shows now watched by more than 200,000 people each week in Los Angeles and have been adopted by school districts in 30 other states. We set about connecting or reconnecting every student with their school community because we wanted to maintain Mm -hmm. that connection like you and I have here today. So every one of our students has been provided with a computer and internet access. That wasn't where we started. We have a real challenge with adequacy and funding. State of California invests about $17,000 a year in a student State of New York, New York City invests about thirty thousand dollars a year, K-12. And that lack of adequacy we would have seen before if you and I had gone to a classroom and said, Wow, there are too many kids in the class, or how come this school library doesn't have a librarian? We would have also asked the question, why doesn't a child have a device and how are they connected? So we provided devices to all, and we took that extra step to make sure we provided internet access. Not something a school district would typically do but the digital divide many of us think of must be that great expanse between Montana and Wyoming or something where it doesn't physically exist it exists mm-hmm. in communities we serve because people can't afford it so we have provided that connectivity to students and their families we've trained 35,000 educators in how to teach online without missing a day of school we offered summer school for all first time ever in our school district and we brought in a bunch of partners loved to unpack this a little bit from Fender to have a guitar class. We sent guitars to a thousand kids. We're doing 2000 this fall hmm. and we created a book club together with Snapchat. So Alicia Keys on Snapchat, talking about a book and encouraging students to participate and download the book for free. Uh, James Cameron worked with our teachers to create a voyage in the Titanic. So engagement becomes important once students aren't a captive audience in a physical place. Uh, we started the school year in a better place than we were in March. 96% of students within the first week of school have been connected. Still a few more to go. We're going to get there. We're going to get back to 100%. Uh, and I hope we also can talk about what we're doing to bring students back, which will be mm-hmm. health practices at schools as well as testing for the virus and uh, tracing those who may have come in contact. So lots of work. But the frame is normally we're focused on read and write and arithmetic. And you can see so many of the challenges. Uh, society faces nests themselves in schools, internet access, for instance, right. where one would have thought, and I'm a little older than both of you, but I grew up with the old rotary phone. Everybody had one. There mm-hmm. was no digital. Thing I had we rotary were all phone.
1: Connected. I'm old.
2: All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but how do we get to this place with broadband and wireless where we didn't bring everybody along? Yeah. That's a real challenge. Shouldn't it, it manifests itself in schools, but it's really a challenge for policymakers at the state or uh, even federal level to say that shouldn't exist. Uh, But we're finding ways to solve it right
0: now. So, Superintendent Buner, first off, I'm a proud alum of uh, LAUSD all the way through. Uh, Fairburn Elementary School. And my question, and this is a bit of a setup, um, uh, my elementary school was all white. And then I went to Emerson Junior High School. And it was integrated uh, busing. And quite frankly, it was a difficult experience. Uh, A lot of um, tension, a lot of violence. And then by the time we got to university high school, something wonderful happened. We were getting along. And I would say the student body back then kind of looked, smelt, and felt like Los Angeles. And there were rich white kids that that uh, made me want to go to Brown and or Stanford. There were uh, kids, uh, my friend Ronnie Drake from uh, Crenshaw, his only way to college was... Um, to get a football scholarship, and I think I developed empathy. So aspiration and empathy through racial diversity and income diversity. And then as a lot of people do when they're back in their hometown, I went back to university high school, and it's, I think, now 88% Latino. And we've lost these upper-income households, which seems to me to be bad for everyone. That this I don't know, traditionally, what I don't know, we call it wide flight, but what do we do to create school systems that create or LAUSD back to a point where there's both empathy and aspiration? Do we start taxing private schools? I mean, it just feels like LAUSD just feels like how do we get back to public schools, America kind of investing in public schools such that?
2: Well, well, well I, I off, think there, there agree are two parts that? to that. No, I agree yeah. with the premise uh, uh, and by the way, if we went to Uni today, that high school actually has the largest portion of students who are experiencing homelessness of any of our high schools. Uh, to give you some uni. sense of the demographic that is at Uni High, uh, one,
0: wouldn't but you would you? By the way, this students is, this in the is a high school smack dab in the center,
2: pretty much of like Westwood, Bel Air, Santa Monica, right? Uh, but let's let's think of schools again as reflecting society. We have a society of haves and have nots. Yeah. Let's have that conversation. Uh, because I don't know that it's necessarily defined around race. It has become reflective of race in our schools, but it's really a demographic challenge, which is we serve the have-nots, 80-plus percent mm-hmm. living in poverty. And by poverty, I mean about a third of our families are trying to get by on a household income of less than $25,000 in Los Angeles. Household income mm-hmm. less than $25,000 in Los Angeles. thats uh, That doesn't work. And because of that, we've seen a shift in a generation or a generation and a half since you were at uni California schools used to lead the nation, used to lead the nation in student outcomes, used to lead the nation in investment uh, measured as, let's say, per capita uh, investment in students. We've gone from top of the pack to bottom of the pack, generation generation and a half. And community haves and have-nots convincing the haves that this was the journey we were on. I'm a public school kid, but for my public mm-hmm. education, I wouldn't have the privilege of sharing this conversation with the two of you today And we have to recreate that opportunity for all in society, and we're not. And and that's a hard conversation to have. You see it in schools, but Mm -hmm. Los Angeles, one of the most diverse communities in the country, tremendous affluence, tremendous poverty, and everything in between, but somehow the public school system now serves those who don't have. uh, And that's not right. We have to begin to address it. There are systemic issues. There are systemic issues in how... Zoning has led to underfunded public schools. Uh, Mm -hmm. Zoning has created disparities where communities of color have less funding than than other communities, right? Uh, But Mm -hmm. foundationally, yes, we have to get the haves and the have-nots to have a conversation about adequate investment in public education. But more tactically, what would you say
0: to an alumni of LAUSD that wanted to help right away? What would be your your call to action? How can we help? Huge beneficiary of the LAUSD wanted to continue to be uh, a springboard for young men, young men and women, boys and girls. What could we do? What can we do?
2: I'll give you the, uh, the high, not the high, the, the broader systemic. Yeah. And then I'll give you something you could do tomorrow. Uh, the okay. systemic is continue to be a voice for the need to rebuild public education. Uh, mm-hmm. And that costs dollars and cents. That's what it all starts with. We have people who do work in schools and we need more people doing more work in schools. That's fundamentally what happens every day. So continue to be a voice for the lack of advocacy and the importance of adequacy in funding public education. Uh, The second, tomorrow, uh, join us, take the journey James Cameron did, and let's figure out a way to create a class in this online setting where we teach each of our students how to create their own podcast and to share their voice, because ultimately it's Mm -hmm. giving students a sense of their own agency as part of what we do. And by the time they're Mm -hmm. at uni, we hope students have found a way to share their story and their voice, and it might be in a podcast or some other form of, uh, journalism, but what we've done with James Cameron, we can do with you, Scott, if you're willing, and we'd love to think about
1: that. Yes, Scott. Yes, Scott With students. I'm not so sure you Well, I'll check to,
2: with my uh, co-host students. and see if she's up to it. <laughs> yes,
1: of course. What are you talking about? I do not need to protect them from you. Um, but more more to the point, uh, when you're thinking about what's lost, though, you have, from from the pandemic, you've gone virtual, the costs are lower, but there also, there's this idea of a lost year. I was talking with one of my sons about it, a lost year of what's happening. And he is a very privileged kid, Um, still feels adrift having, he keeps using the word meaningless. Like this is, is this meaningless, which of course is typical for uh, a lot of kids feeling that way. What have you lost here? And what do you think has been uh, what have you looked at and thought This is maybe this is some changes we need to make in our education system like Scott talks about? Because one of the things he talked about was the importance of physically being with each other, that that there's this socialization sure. part, there's this yeah. other part. So Without what, what question,
2: that, that we want to be back in schools. That's where learning best happens. And let me just uh, recalibrate one comment you made. It actually costs more in online and even more in hybrid. We can come back to that. But we know for certain types of students in particular – they are missing the most. It's now six months, six months since students have been mm-hmm. in schools, the longest in modern mm-hmm. history. Uh, I've never seen anybody learn to read online. Don't know how that's going to work. Our mm-hmm. uh, students learning English, students with differences in disabilities, students who might've been struggling before. Online isn't the best way to help that student uh, catch up, let alone make progress or accelerate the pace of progress. We're doing some things online to try to address that. A Zoom, a group Zoom, it's pretty hard to provide individualized attention. So we're providing Mm one-on-one tutoring in ways we've never done before, things like that. Uh, But no question, students are going to learn best in a classroom setting, and not just learn best, the socialization, the other uh, 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 non-school learnings that you might think of in a school setting we're missing out on. Students miss their friends, teachers miss their students, Mm -hmm. that mentorship that comes from a classroom setting with a great teacher leading a group of young men and women and so on all those are missing. Uh, and we have students in isolation. And it's important that we don't think of what a uh, home setting looks like by any of the three of us. We've got nice mm-hmm. roofs over our head. We know where our next meal's coming from. Uh, that's not necessarily the case for so many of our families. And so the shift to online where the burden is on the family to be the mentor, the proctor, the homework helper, yeah. where even finding a quiet place to do work is really, really hard to do uh, we want back in school as soon as we can do so in a way that's safe and appropriate for all who are in school.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Scott, and then we have a couple questions from the audience.
0: The calculus around bringing kids, I think it's a different calculus, the calculus to bring back kids, even a different calculus from my like K through five versus sixth grade to 12th grade versus higher ed. Just walk us through in your mind, what was the calculus around your decision to open or hybrid or not open? Sure.
2: Uh, We closed in March with no incidents in schools. None. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a new and uh, obviously toxic disease. We wanted to make sure we kept the safety and health of all in school community first, Paramath. Back in July, we made the decision to stay online because the overall health factors in the community weren't right. There's still way too much COVID in Los Angeles area. And the community has to be right before you can think about going back to school. So we're still online Uh, When we go back, it will be hybrid, not because we're choosing hybrid over all back or online. It's because hybrid is a compromise between what you'll need to do for health practices. Less students in a classroom means more space or more space means less students. We don't have extra teachers. We don't have extra buildings. So the constraints around health practice lead us to some sort of hybrid model where students will be out of school part time and not out of school part time. So that continuity of learning will, will have online continuing for the uh, for the better part of the school year. Now, we are building a testing and tracing effort to be back as soon as we can do so safely and to keep students there. So we have three universities, two labs, two health insurers, a tech giant, partridge and a pear tree. The whole group is together mm-hmm. to try to build this foundation, and the importance of it is not just the information we'll have, but the ability to isolate and trace. And go back to March, head of the World Health Organization said, test, test, test. If you want to get control of this, you have to test, trace, and isolate. And connecting that to schools, you know, not far down the road from uni, the rival Hamilton High School, about 3,000 students come from all over Los Angeles. They connect between siblings and children of those who work in the school. They connect to 100,000 people every day. That's a Petri dish. So if you can't connect yeah. them with the presence or absence mm. of the virus, uh, you're going to cre- recreate a Petri dish, which we do not want to do. So we need community health factors, right? Health practices in schools, testing, tracing that takes us back to school and hopefully keeps students in school.
1: And so do you have any timeline? Because, you know, you're nearing the people end, nearing the end of high school. It has disrupted for college, for admissions process, job training, et cetera. Sort of stops everyone it, and preserves them in amber, essentially.
2: Yeah. No. Unfortunately, at every level uh, of a K twelve journey, even our our earliest learners in our early ed centers, we want yeah. to be back when we can do so safely. So we're putting in the foundation to do so safely and to keep students there. I think one of the things that's not discussed as much as it might be is the need to make sure we can isolate and trace at a school. We've seen the example in Indiana in a middle school. Mm-hmm. Someone becomes ill. The word gets out everybody rushes out of the school. Uh, the school becomes mm-hmm. a haunted house. No one has the information to figure out, can you yeah. go back safely? But well, we need that information. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do is build the baseline. Uh, we're not uh, a week or two away. It's further out than that. And mm-hmm. we'll be guided first by what the overall health factors are, second, what our science partners say, and that's the foundation on which we're doing all of this.
1: And then watching other school systems. Okay, a couple of quick questions, if you could answer them. How can schools proactively monitor their students for mental health concerns and intervene as necessary? You already had that issue, but now it's sort of tripled and tripled and quick.
2: Well, we talk a little about the health crisis, right? mm-hmm. and the system more or less rose to the occasion. There, there are ventilators where there needs to be a ventilator, if you will. The health crisis is becoming an education crisis, and my hope is the federal response and the state response is similar and robust, so the adequacy of funding and all the tools and support is there. If we're not careful, the next ECHO will be a mental health crisis. We, before all of this, had great needs Mm -hmm. in our schools. That will come back to schools. The child who's from a family where someone may become sick, or God forbid, worse than that, Uh, the child from a family where someone has lost work. All that stress and trauma is going to come back. We're going to need more mental health support in schools. Until then, we're continuing to provide a safety net. We have a hotline. Any student, any family can call. We've got counselors on standby to have that conversation, refer them for help. Uh, But we know it's coming back to school when we're back at schools, and we have to be ready for it.
1: All right. Do you plan to conduct uh, summative testing this year? If not, how will you identify and remediate 18 months of an unstable learning environment and huge learning loss?
2: Yeah, let's... let's, uh, Define for the audience formative and summative. So mm-hmm. summative for us is a state annual test. Uh, the state mm-hmm. did not do those last year, will not, uh, to our understanding, be requiring this year. We are doing formative evaluations, which a teacher might customize to her group of 10 or 32 students in a classroom to get a sense of, okay, care, where are you? Haven't seen you for three months. What's your level? What can I do to help you provide mm-hmm. you feedback, provide your family feedback? So low stakes formative assessment being done. We think that's the most viable. That's where the educator in the classroom can use to guide a student, provide feedback, and provide feedback to the family. Uh, I think we're a ways away from summative tests The standardize meaning much in this environment when the focus has got to be on helping students catch back up and accelerate their pace of progress.
1: Okay, last question. Do political forces like gerrymandering make it difficult to effectively govern a school system where there can be stark differences in resources between schools?
2: Uh, We we are the largest school system in the country with an elected school board, so politics enters schools. That can Mm -hmm. be tricky to navigate. Uh, We try to keep the focus on students, and if that's our North Star, I think we're going to do just fine. Uh, The disparity resource, we're we're as a school district all on the side of the have-nots, unfortunately. Um, So the disparity between Los Angeles Unified and other more affluent school districts Uh, might be where that tension comes in politically, maybe at a state level or even at a federal level. Uh, But Los Angeles Unified, we're working and fighting on behalf of students, more than 80% of whom live in poverty. Uh, So we're fighting for the have-nots to make sure there's adequacy and appropriate funding in public schools.
1: All right, this is great. What tech giant are you working with? I'm sorry, besides Snap and some, you mentioned some others?
2: Uh, Microsoft. So Microsoft is providing a foundation. Mm -hmm. They're building an app, which is actually we're adapting the Microsoft Return to Work app So you would have your device, you would do a self-check for your health factors. That becomes the place in which the testing gets layered on top of ultimately ending in a QR code, which says, come on in today, whether it's green or if it's red, gosh, we need to get you a test, or maybe if it's more urgent than that, make sure to connect you with a healthcare provider. So Microsoft's providing that foundation. All the data will be in the systems they've created for us because we'll be gathering data from health insurers on what the impacts of COVID are in the community, what Mm -hmm. happens from our tests, how we schedule nurses to provide the tests. So Microsoft has built an end-to-end system uh, to help manage, but the interface, all of those are in schools we'll see, is the app that's on a device of some sort, uh, which allows us to make sure that we're communicating carefully with the community about what the health needs and the health impacts in a school are, and to make sure as we bring people back, we've set up ways to mitigate the risk as best as possible.
1: All right, uh Superintendent Butner, thank you so much for coming on and Good luck with this. schools have started have started already. Have they begun? We started uh, back week? on
2: August eighteenth August, uh, and um uh, and uh so we've got a couple of weeks so far you know we're we're doing all right. I mean, we need to continue to make it better absolutely. We learned something since March. we learned something in summer, we're applying it every day uh but ninety six percent of kids connected in the first week is a good start. It's the foundation on which we can build.
1: Great. Thank yes, you so much. We really, I really appreciate
2: you being. I'll follow
0: up with you offline. I would like to get involved in some way in, in university. He high will. School. Scott will become
1: a teacher. Okay. All right. Call me if you need any Stay help over. with him. Okay. All right. Thank All you right. so appreciate much. It. Thank you very much. Teacher Scott. Oh, no. That's a disturbing situation. I better. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> better University take High, high
0: School, uh, talk right. about a piece of yeah. information. The high school I went to has now the largest homeless population of any public school in LA. Think about that. Not really? Uh, I mean, it's just. Eighty-five uh, percent of the students in LAUSD are dealing are technically living in poverty. I mean, it's just it, it, it's like schools our schools have, it's have like inherited school. all of
1: society's problems. Yeah, yeah, you I, know,
0: yeah, It's very, it's very discouraging. It
1: uh, oddly enough, may I give you a little point of thing you don't know about me? My uh, th- thesis at Columbia Journalism School was about kids living in homeless shelters trying to go to school. That was my story. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot about this. A really difficult way to conduct education. It's almost impossible to do a good job. Uh, these students are really struggling. Um, but speaking of which, uh, let's bring our friend Walt Mossberg, who's going to help us answer some questions, of, uh, from the audience and share his expertise on education and tech. Walt Mossberg. Hey, Mossberg
5: expertise in education. Hey Swisher.
1: Hey, how you doing? Hey, they're, they're, how's it going?
5: I went to various schools, but mm-hmm. I didn't run any.
1: No, I know you didn't, but you're working on some stuff.
5: Yeah, I do, I am. And um, I just, before I talk about that, I just for a second want to comment on Scott's slides, which I think were terrific and I agree with. I'll tell you, Scott, that I was actually a trustee of a an expensive Northeast private uh, university, mm-hmm. Brandeis University, where mm-hmm. I graduated mm-hmm. for about four years, and uh, it was a very large board of trustees. It had about 40 people on it, and in the last vote uh, in which I participated, I refused to vote for the budget. I was the only one, and I refused to vote for it because it had, a, th- I think, a 3% or 2.7% Tuition increase. This is about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just, they said, well, why won't you vote for this? I was already the most, the least popular trustee because I asked too many questions. <laughs> and, um, I said, I said, because it's immoral and unsustainable. And, um, I'm just not going to vote for the, you know, for the budget. Yeah. And so that's the way I went out as a college trustee.
1: Well done, Mossberg. And
5: uh, so I was primed for your slides.
1: Excellent. Let me give some background. Walt, Walt and I started All Things D and Recode together. For, we worked together for seventeen years. Walt is my mentor. Uh, he's also the former personal technology columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Is now on the board of the News Literacy Project. Um, and as he said, he was on the formerly on the board of trustees for Brandis. Um, talk about the News Literacy Project because it's relevant for the coming elections and and more. And and so talk a little bit about it and why you focused on this after you retired.
5: Well, it's a big reason I did retire, actually, which was to put my time and effort into it. Um, the News Literacy Project is an organization that's 12 years old. It did not just start after the 2016 election, mm-hmm. and it has been focused and is focused uh, primarily on K-12, uh, actually middle and high schools students, and um, it has a digital curriculum which uh, can be used in any class by any teacher although it's primarily social studies and english um and uh we teach uh, it's kind of the demand side of um disinformation and misinformation mm-hmm. we teach uh uh students who uh, still have malleable minds uh how to do critical thinking about stuff they See online and how to stop and think before they share something that may agree with what they believe, but be false. Uh, may uh, come from their best friend who they trust, but may be false. And we have uh, uh, lessons that uh, teachers you can use in the classroom that teach them uh, how to distinguish uh, what's a hoax and what's conspiracy theory versus what are facts. Mm-hmm. We also teach what journalism is, what journalists do. We have the students, uh, there are there are units where they have to be a reporter. We give them a situation. It's not a national political situation, but we give them a, a news situation and they have to be a reporter and they learn kind of what it is like to try to be a reporter uh, and, and what goes into that, um, how people lie or how people... Uh, unwittingly don't have the facts. And we also uh, teach them about the First Amendment.
1: Right, which is critical. So that brings us to uh, Facebook, I guess. And you were one of the first people to really start focusing in, as I recall, when you called, uh, when I was starting to cover Facebook, you turned to me and you hadn't done a whole lot on it. You said, Mark Zuckerberg is an information thief. And that was the nicest thing you said. Yeah. And it was the, it was the beginning. And you had spent the nice, your whole nicest thing and you spent your career, you know, talking to the bigwigs of tech and, and watching the growth of it. And you're considered probably the most well-known tech journalist, uh, who really did pioneer the, the, the sector. When you look across this and you're working on the news literacy project and you're thinking about education and pe- young people, young people's minds. What do you, and the impact of COVID? It's like all on top of each other, and you have the president tweeting. How do you look at the landscape? If you were sort of commentating right now, if you were writing, what would you focus on? What do you think is important to focus on in tech and media?
5: I think we are desperately in need of, and I know how ridiculous this sounds given the situation right now, but we are desperately in need of federal laws that set some guardrails and some principles and, and and regulatory regimes for the web, uh, for social media in particular.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And I think we actually also need a new agency. Uh, it could be a court, doesn't have to be a regulatory agency. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote a column uh, before I retired three years ago calling for a specialized court that could build up a body of precedence, but not micromanage mm-hmm. uh, the web. Uh, but there's a, there's a number of ways to do it, uh, where we, uh, force these guys to, uh, enforce their, their own terms of service or what is in the statute. And look, Mark Zuckerberg can get rid of a lot of this bad stuff uh, proactively much more quickly than he's doing and much more broadly than he's doing. And he just doesn't care. Um, I don't think he has, he, I don't think, I think Facebook is irredeemable without a government intervention. And, you know, this, this bullshit that, that he's able to do what he wants because of, the First Amendment is bullshit because the First Amendment does not require him mm-hmm. to co- to carry any content. It's also I think it's getting very tricky to call Facebook or Twitter uh just a neutral platform. I think in particular Facebook they are essentially a publisher. I would argue that ha- having an algorithm um organize what you can see in your feed you, you know you may not see what your, all of your friends have posted because the algorithm uh, organizes that, I think that's really not that much different than the editor of the Washington Post and his sub-editors sitting down and making a decision.
1: Scott, he's speaking your language.
5: Yeah,
0: I mean, well... Uh, I am Walt minus the credibility and, and, and history and domain <laughs> expertise. But anyways, we're, we're brothers. <laughs> we are brothers from another mother here, uh, a- including, including the refu- refusal to, uh, uh, endorse the budget. I was on the board of the high school. Although anyway, I won't even go into it, but if I had called you, uh, at the outset and, and, uh, when I just started working with Karen said, look, give me an unfiltered, unfiltered advice on working with Kara Swisher, what would you have told me?
1: Oh, my God. All right. Fine. I'll allow it. Oh,
5: geez. Um, remember, I did 17 years, and I know you guys are close and you do a great job, but I did 17 years, and I talk quite long. so <laughs> what it like the world Conversation, Scott. I did 17 um, <laughs> years. <laughs> Kara, Kara Swisher oh. is <laughs> a genius. She's the best natural uh, journalist I know, and we... We're we're different people, but we bonded quickly. We're still bonded. Mm -hmm. And I would just would have told you that she has fantastic instincts and it's, it's good to trust them, but it's also good to push back sometimes because sometimes she wants to change things for the sake of changing things, for instance, or whatever. And you have to be in there with her and she will listen to you, but she has phenomenal instincts and I adore her.
2: All and, right. That's um, I actually walked answer. her down the
5: aisle at she did,
2: one of her week. many
5: weddings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's one coming up. There's a new one coming up that you're going to be, better get ready for. Anyway, um, so let's ask the questions from the audience here. We've got a few minutes, then we're going to get to some other questions. Uh, what are the challenges young people face in understanding and trusting information on the web?
5: Well, I think there's a natural instinct to believe what you read, mm-hmm. um, whether it's you know, in the old days in print, or now um, on the web. And I think the other big challenge is there's a, there's a natural instinct to believe what your what people you trust and like have uh, liked. There's always peer pressure for young people. And there's also just, you know, Kara's my friend, Kara mm-hmm. uh, shared this with me, should I go on and reshare it to a bunch of other people? And it's kind of like the pandemic. I mean, you know, it goes on and on until... Goes viral, but it wasn't true. It was a stock photo from three years ago and some completely different situation. But it appears to show that that you know Kenosha is is cinders and mm-hmm. and and there are no buildings left there. And so right. um, I think those are the challenges, and that's what we are trying to do.
1: All right, I'm going to stop you because I have another question. What's the biggest change you've seen covering tech from 10 to 20 years ago to today?
5: Um, well, first of all, th- th- there's way more, uh, tech companies than there were 10 mm-hmm. to 20 years ago. Secondly, um, we have a definite five company oligarchy, which is, it annoys me when people use the word tech because I think even these five companies in the oligarchy are different one from the other. And, uh, they all have different uh, flaws and strengths. But um, the oligarchy snaps up small companies uh, and doesn't let them uh, have a chance to grow to become big. I mean, you know, Apple was little. Google was little. I mean, Kara, I remember you and Mm -hmm. I going to a cheap Chinese lunch with Larry and Sergey before they could afford a jet. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
5: They were very little at one point. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, I think today we have fewer companies that either want to or get the opportunity to grow into something competitive to the big guys, okay. and that's a different world.
1: Okay. Uh, All right. Can now I just gonna... say something? I mean, just as okay. an example, sure. I-,
5: I did the first review ever of Zoom
1: mm-hmm. when
5: it had hmm. nothing, Right. and that was in 2012. And I wonder today if Zoom wouldn't have just sold to one of the big guys if it started today.
1: That's a really Um, good question. That's an excellent. So we're going to, Walt, you're going to stay with us. Um, It's time for listener mail. First, we have a video question from Roman Rubenstein.
2: Scott, you separated the value of colleges
0: into three broad categories of credentials, experience, and education. The first two, credentials and experience, can be measured in real time or immediately upon graduation. But measuring the value of education takes decades. You've used 30 year NPV to measure the monetary benefits. This could also be extended to societal benefits and personal self-actualization. All of this makes it really hard to measure impact of new innovations in education ex ante. Instead, professors, students, and parents fall back on centuries of proven data and approaches. So the question is, how can innovators in the space break out of this conundrum?
1: Okay, quick answer from both of you. Scott?
0: Uh, Walt, you go first.
1: In the hard one. um I think it's
5: I, <laughs> thanks god uh, you're learning i um I honestly think you won't you don't know the value of your education until you're maybe thirty mm-hmm. um I don't know how what the metrics are that would allow you to to justify that do you justify it by income? I don't think so I mean it's part of it, but it's not most of it. do you justify it by what job title you have. I mean, I, I just think you have to look at what kind of person has been turned out and how the part of that person that is re- represented by education um, factors into their life and work.
1: All right. Scott?
5: Yeah. What,
0: what One of my favorite books, The Little Prince, says the essential is invisible to the eye. The curiosity, the empathy, Falling in love for the first time, getting your heart broken, having your heart grow back stronger, realizing you'll, you'll be okay with the resilience, testing your limits, you know, all of these things. What is essential is invisible to the eye. There's a, an impossible to measure joyous exploration in a safe place that is college. And, um, and I I don't want to pretend that we're going to replace that virtually. The question is, can we, can we expand? access to that incredibly joyous experience, even if it's less leafy or less Rolexified, to more and more kids? How do we give more, you know, I just want to go back to the future. I want to go back to the shitty buildings at UCLA where I could afford to go for 400 bucks. But he's right. Those, that stuff is really difficult to measure and I don't want to underestimate how, how how important it is.
1: All right. Next video question was sent in by, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Louis Swisher in New York.
0: Uh oh. Hello, Professor Galloway. Um, I'm here in my dorm at NYU. Uh, just completed my quarantine. I'm very excited to be over with it. Um, I have been wondering, it's been hard for me to focus on my schoolwork, mostly because my mind's just in an absent space during this quarantine. But going forward with online education and distance learning and all these measures that are just so new to us, what advice can you give someone like me who just has a bit of a, uh, like an attention problem um, and like who has t- trouble being engaged in stuff like this. I just, I, I really want to get the most out of my education. Sometimes I find it hard to. So I'm just wondering any advice you have going forward. Thank you. Hope all is well.
1: Fantastic hair from Swisher. Go ahead. Go ahead, all Scott.
0: I of, literally, all I could think about, I could barely listen to what he was saying. All I could think about is like, Jesus Christ, look at that hair. Look at that hair. <laughs> He's a cross Both between idiots. He's a cross between Cher and a C Grain from Oregon, who went on to be an amazing basketball player.. Uh, God, if I had that hair, I'd literally have it out to here. I would look like He'll some sort of some. hipster. He'll lend
1: you some. He's getting it cut this
0: week. Oh, my God. You go
1: ahead. You well, go I don't know. It. How
0: does he focus? Well, boss, it, it sucks to be a grown-up. You're at NYU. You're going to have to learn how hard it is to focus. Other than that, get some ADHD drugs and call me back. You're like, le- Learning <laughs> how to focus and do shit you don't want to do, that's called being an adult. Suck He's it up. talking about switch.
1: online. 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 It's a very different experience. A lot of kids are, you know, having trouble. You haven't been
0: in my class. Learning. It's not easy to focus in my class. <laughs> I'm sorry go ahead Walt.
5: Let, let let me let me just say first first of all on the on the crappy buildings my first building uh my first dorm was just a cinder block it was like a prison cell but yeah. I loved it because That's I great. wasn't living with my parents right. um secondly Louie who I will tell you I first saw the day she brought her him home from the hospital um, Louie looks like all the other students when I went to college in the sixties. Yeah, that's when I went to college. Tie dye thing.
0: Tie
1: dye is a thing. Tie dye
5: <laughs> and long. I'm sorry, L-
0: hair. Kara. I just sort gotta of, say, with that, that hair, that guy is not distancing. That guy is that guy is not that is groovy hair. That guy <laughs> is not distancing. Is <laughs> oh sorry, no listen, way! Stop! No listen, way! I know you're jealous of distancing. the hair.
1: Give him, give students. That He's guy's a great getting kid. some play.
5: He's a good guy. He's a great guy.
1: <laughs> now, yeah, he, he seems like not. a great kid. What do you do if we're moving to a virtual education? The, 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 the...
0: We're not moving there. It'll be hybrid.
1: All right. Okay. So it doesn't matter because Austin, Austin Mutner was saying you can't learn to read in a virtual environment. I'm trying to get you to if, focus. That's
5: K to 12. That's a much more serious problem. Yeah. He's gonna College students should be able to handle it unless it goes on forever. Yeah. Mark my
0: words. Within six months, I will bump into mm-hmm. a place that neither of us should be at. I will bump into Louie at some ridiculous (laughs) underground bar where neither of us should be (laughs) within six months. He'll be fine.
1: (laughs) All right. You two are useless having these. Okay. So don't go to class. It doesn't matter. Suck it up, Louie. That is sucking up uh, all uh, you college Just a
0: question. Well, uh, just a comment. Mm -hmm. What Walt said hit it right on the head. When I went Mm -hmm. to UCLA, the buildings were falling apart. When I went to Berkeley... The high School of Business was a terrible building. And you know what? These beautiful buildings, they aren't there for the students. They're there for alumni and for donors and for recruiters. We went there to learn. We went there to socialize. We went there to spill into adulthood. And it didn't, we didn't need refra- refracted wood. And the food sucked. And the, that was okay. I lived on Top Ramen. The food sucked. It all sucked. fine because I, I had good uh. hair like Louie and Daddy was getting it done on, on Top <laughs> <Okay>. Ramen. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right walt had mutton chops i just didn't want it anyway okay i this, I, this, I had
5: i had hair and i had long here
1: yeah okay this meeting of my exit my ex and my current whatever <laughs> is is ending now okay walt this is <laughs> not this was a mistake <laughs> obviously <laughs>
5: all
1: right i appreciate it walt thank you so much for all the work you're doing
5: thanks walt we appreciate you're it welcome Kara.
1: all right welcome, have a great day Scott. We'll i'll talk great we'll talk soon We'll talk soon. We'll have a lovely socially distanced dinner very I'm soon. I'm sure we
5: will. Okay.
1: okay. All right. Bye, sir. Oh, my God, Scott. That was really a mistake on my part. Okay. One more thing to do before we wrap up today's show, and that's for Scott. And this-
0: That's why you're here with me. I am <laughs> you what you were to him. I, my sense is that yeah. you draft off of his brand, and I'm drafting off of yours
1: that's right and you're moving along okay so anyway special guest to make some predictions okay predictions is our final episode and it's our final uh thing here i know we've kept people here a long time but too bad it's good stuff okay uh before we get to your predictions uh professor we have another special guest who sent in a video with their prediction let's play it (laughs)
4: There's been a lot of discussion about the implications of remote education for the underserved communities in, in dense urban areas that can't afford, you know, laptops and Zoom and to be able to uh, internet connections uh, to be able to do this sort of thing from home. I, I think the the bigger um, intermediate and long term implication for K through 12 education in the United States is that as the workforce in this country um, realizes that it can be productive from anywhere and there's a move out of dense urban locations to more remote locations in the country such as where I am right now um the tax base in in states like California and New York whose education systems rely so heavily um on public funding are are really going to come under even more pressure than they've been under uh, they're already under intense pressure uh, because of the uh, funding, pensions, and, and so forth. But that's going to be a real problem, I think, in the intermediate term that we're going to have to solve at the national level.
1: Man, that was a serious one. I'm expecting a joke from Dick Costello. He's the former CEO of Twitter and my second favorite bald white man in tech. Uh, Scott, w- that's an interesting prediction that he made there. That's a very serious one. And of course, we've talked about it We're
0: at a crossroads people. here. People are constantly asking what happens to New York. And you can see, you can see that if, Wealthy people continue to leave, uh, become tax pats in Florida or Texas, and as a result, social services get cut. There's already been a noticeable uptick in homelessness. Crime hasn't risen, but uh, but homicides have increased dramatically in New York. You could see it basically a downward spiral where we go back to New York in the mm-hmm. 70s. At the same time, at the same time, if New York becomes more affordable, if some of those midtown offices are converted to condos and kids can start moving to New York again without their parents putting them through New York, and New York gets younger and it becomes a place where you, you only have to make a good living versus an outrageous living, you can see it being yeah. another golden age. And typically cities do really well post pandemic. So it's a really, int- we're at a really interesting crossroads mm-hmm. here. I think New York, and I'm just talking about New York, becomes, you know, it's such a singular city and I'm biased, but. The bottom line is the migration of the U.S. can be described very simply. And Dick spoke to this; it was a very thoughtful question. Basically, low taxes and sunshine are getting people, and high taxes and cold are losing people. And it feels like we're going to need some sort of federal legislation because some of these states are just going to get—they're on a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. When one man, David Tepper, leaves, moves from Short Hills, New Jersey, to Miami, and the 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 treasurer of New Jersey has to call an emergency meeting because they have a hundred and ten million dollar hole in their budget. Which means closing schools and food banks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a real issue. The bottom line is I don't I don't have a I, I don't have an answer. It's a thoughtful question. It'll be very interesting yeah. to see what happens in the last twelve months.
1: All right. So your prediction. Months. We're gonna end on your prediction, Scott Galloway.
0: Okay. So <laughs> I was thinking, I'm, I'm just fascinated. By the way, TikTok was supposed to announce who they, they were going to be acquired by yesterday. Did you see how that came and went, Kara? It didn't happen? Yeah, I did.
1: You are correct. So we discussed it, that.
0: If you think about what's happening, it, essentially, Facebook, Google, and Amazon are sequestering the entire consumer world into one of three buckets, and that is every retailer, every services company... It's going to be denied oxygen from these three companies that are developing such strong vertical integration that they capture the consumer. And if you want to download your, if you want them to download your app or you want them to buy your product or you want them to see your ad, you have to go through these arbiters of all commerce media. And the company that it probably realizes this and has the currency to go do something about it is number two is Twitter, but number one, and it's the least talked about company that'll probably make the most dramatic acquisition or play because I think these guys not only have the currency but they have the vision is shopify and I think it's a hundred and twenty million mm-hmm. dollar markup. I think Shopify is even going to get into the content business uh, I'll stop there. I think they're going to get into the media business because they see over time Amazon will be continue to sequester. Consumers and unless they can offer their customers, which are mom and pop retailers who don't want to enter the ecosystem, the strangle, you know, the the strangulation relationship, the partnership where they're the virus and you're the host relationship that any retailer enters into with Amazon, they're going to have to figure out a way, a funnel to move consumers to their small and medium sized retailers. So I think Shopify has the currency. And the will and the vision to go make a big acquisition in media or something around customer acquisition. So anyway, Shopify, a dramatic oh, okay. acquisition no one is expecting by the end of the year.
1: All right. Okay. All right. Do you have any choice for the uh, TikTok purchase or you think it's going to be the slow roll of China, as you discussed? I I
0: love what you said and I hadn't thought about it. They announced something and it never closes. Yeah. Never the closes. Endless
1: non-deal. Okay. That's what's going to happen. Anyway, Scott, as usual, this is all the time we have for I today's Pivot School. This we're is gonna, my favorite. We're going to... This was my favorite. Absolutely. Me too. They're all good. They're all, all our children are lovely. Listen. We're going to come back and do more pivot schools live as soon as we get this vaccine. I think he we're going to do a Louis live. Hair.
0: My God, Louis, what is <laughs> with? He's going
1: to give you. some... I'm going to have gosh. him put some in a bag and oh send it to God. you can deliver it to your lovely home, and you can put you can paste it on. It's beautiful hair at the he same should time, start it's a gorgeous. Cult.
0: It's lovely. definitely start
1: a cult. He, that hair lives anyway. Um, oh that's it for <laughs> you. Can't have my son's hair. That's how, that's God where we awesome. are in our relationship. Anyway, this is awesome. is, uh, this, listen, listen, Rapunzel. That's the end of this. Uh, I want to thank our amazing editorial and events team for putting the series together. Shannon Thompson, Erica Anderson, Michelle Berg, Eric Johnson, Devin Brisky, Adam Tau, Drew Burrows, uh, Mia Silvario, Rebecca Castro, and so many more. We couldn't do this great work without you. Scott, any final words of wisdom before we turn off the lights?
0: Greatness is in the agency of others. I didn't think this was going to work. And there are so many people behind mm-hmm. the scenes making us look better than we deserve. This was an online conference. There's a ton of innovation from crisis to opportunity, conferences, online learning, the opportunity to lower costs in education. Uh, all we need is a lot more empathy, a lot more concern for uh, the bottom 50% of our population that find themselves yes, in a the wealthiest indeed. country vulnerable. But I, I think the people behind the scenes here I did not think this was going to work. It's worked. We did something different. We donated a decent amount of cash. Granted, it wasn't $300 million, but at least what we're doing is not a fucking lie. We're actually trying to help people. <laughs> so look, thanks to everyone behind the scenes. Thank you, Cara, for having the vision to do this. I didn't want to do this. So, And yeah. thanks everyone for showing up and listening. Thanks so much to everyone who joined us live for Pivot Schooled. Remember that if you paid for a ticket to the live show, you can watch the video replays of all five episodes at pivotschool.com. You can also buy Pivot Schooled swag at pivotschool.com slash shop.